0: Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg.
1: So the president on the record saying he's open to an interim deal. Pleased to say that Kathy Fisher is with us. Bernstein, head of wealth and investment strategy. She's with us
0: for the next four hours. Right? With us
1: for the next six minutes. So let's make the most of it. Kathy, great to have you with us. Things aren't as bad as they seem. At least, certainly not so compared to three weeks ago.
2: That's right, Um, although I don't want to read too much into the um, back and forth on things like interim trade deals. Yes, it's good news, but we all know it can change tomorrow, right? I think that's what the market has recognized. We're going to have ups and downs on the trade talks. And as I was saying before, I think a much more realistic recognition that lower interest rates are not a panacea. We are trying to figure out how to deal in a world where global trade has been unmoored by these tariff issues and countries are doing what they can to offset it, But interest rates alone cannot do it, which is why the topic of fiscal stimulus is back on the table, because countries are going to try to do what they can at their own levels to adjust to a a very different environment than we've seen. Many people have come on
1: this program and said these tariffs aren't going anywhere, regardless of who is in the White House. And I think we got a real flavor of that. Last night, yesterday evening. It was about one hour and about thirty minutes into the debate with the Democratic presidential candidates. The moderator asked the candidates essentially one simple question on your first day in office would you unwind remove the tariffs I didn't hear a single candidate come out firmly and say they would do that, Kathy.
2: Remember, the Democrats have always been the party that was anti-global trade. So of course the Democrats cannot protest what's going on with tariffs. Absolutely. So we do have to expect that this is a new reality that's going to be with us for quite some time. And the issues between the US and and China are quite existential. They're very much how you operate your economy. They're not just buying soybeans. So these things are going to be with us for a long time.
0: When you work every day, wealth management, what do you rationalize as economic growth? I mean, if it's tariff induced, and by definition, tariffs will reduce economic growth, let's go with that core idea. What is the Kathy Fisher run rate of the American economy for investment? Is it sub 3%?
2: Is it sub 2%? It's a, it's a very good question. It is certainly closer to two than three. And we, we, we cannot ignore the bigger trends, which are demographics, which are technology. These are, these are positives oh. and negatives, but we are clearly in a slower growth environment, and, and the deterioration in growth because of tariffs in recent quarters has been quite well, let me, notable. Let me
0: dovetail the 4% number. Joyce Chang of J.P. Morgan with a 4.5% out there for Chinese economic growth. And the other 4% was the bombshell in the cover of The Times uh, yesterday or the day before, The Times of London, of an actuarial annuity of 4.1% on a life annuity. That's in your wheelhouse. Mm-hmm. I mean, these are all lower numbers yes. than any of our listeners comprehend.
2: Right. I, I mean, just back up and say we're a little more optimistic on China. <clears throat> we think something in the okay, close to six fine. is still possible. And China's, that still matters a great deal. But um, Japan, Germany, these numbers are, are, are notably weak. And we have to accept that this is a, we will have lower growth going forward for quite some time. Populism is part of it. There's a lot of big trends that are going to change the dynamics we've been accustomed to. But remember, companies adjust, and that's what I say all the time. Companies figure out how to deal in a different environment, whether it's tariffs, whether it's technology, whether it's changing consumer behaviors. And that's what we're trying to decipher.
1: Final question on policy. Are we going to get a fiscal response in Europe?
2: You know, the the, the, the tolerance for deficit spending is much greater than it's been ever. And while uh, Germany in particular will be re- the last one to want to do that, I think there's more tolerance now than we've seen before for any kind of uh, fiscal stimulus that could indeed cause greater mm. deficits. It's, it's a very broad-based trend in every part mm. of the globe.
0: Kathy, thank you so much. With a lot of breaking thank news you, today, Kathy, Kathy thank Fisher you. with Bernstein uh, helping out today. We've had a lot of news flow, and particularly on Europe, so we are advantaged with Meredith Sumter of Eurasia Group to go right to China, right to trade, and we can do this with their definitive knowledge of domestic China and particularly how language is perceived. What will be the domestic language, Meredith Sumter, of the idea they're gonna let soybeans and much needed pork into China? How does that play in the Chinese press?
3: Great question, Tom. Well, certainly Xi Jinping will position this as providing relief to China's domestic market, more so than any sort of concession that he's looking to, to provide to President Trump. He's got, as you know, you know, he's got a very important uh, political anniversary coming up on October 1st. This is the 70th anniversary of the founding of the People's Republic of China. So everything is going to be very carefully stage-managed Uh, And for that reason, actually more so than it was um, strategically, a move to to uh, get back to talks, uh, Beijing let Washington know that moving forth with a a hike in in tariff rates on October first would be politically unpalatable to President Xi on such an anniversary. And that provided that first opening that uh, that got us to where we are now, with Chinese negotiators, working level negotiators coming over mid this month, followed by uh, cabinet level uh, negotiators meeting in October.
1: Meredith, to understand whether the softening of stances is sustainable, we need a better understanding of what underpins it. And if it all comes down to October 1st and a national celebration, I don't see that as sounding too sustainable because once you get beyond that, are we back to square one? What are your thoughts about what underpins it beyond on October 1st celebration?
3: Certainly, we're moving towards a, a mini deal. This is not going to be a, a structural improvement to the bilateral relationship. More so... It's going to be both sides, Trump and she, both have incentives to avoid an escalation and to seek economic relief when it's politically feasible to do so. But neither side is desperate enough to make the political concessions necessary to reach a comprehensive agreement. And I think, despite the the slight lift that we've seen this morning in markets, slight optimism, you know, I think underlining this, there is a a broader realization among investors that even if you do get some kind of deal or many deals, what we're calling it, uh, this autumn, this is not going to result in a a structural realignment of of the two largest economies.
1: The president went on the record yesterday evening and said that he would be open to an interim deal. Meredith, what would that include and what would it exclude?
3: This is a great question because what you hear from the Chinese side and versus what you hear from the Washington side, there's some slight, slight differences there Uh, in that President Trump yesterday had mentioned IP as possibly being part of a mini deal. In order for Beijing to agree to any kind of significant IP concessions, they would expect that President Trump would not just delay Onward tariff escalation, but actually roll back some existing tariffs, which is something that we judge at this stage, yeah. President Trump is is not interested in in moving forth with. But you know, again, uh, the the uptick in ag purchases in exchange for yeah. a delay of onward tariff escalation, and maybe some a few licenses given to Huawei. Uh, that's pretty much what we expect.
0: Right. Meredith, we learned last night that the Democrats and Republicans, or at least the Democrats and President Trump, I should say, are on the same page. Against China, doubtful of any trade, fairness, and reciprocity uh, as well. For the Communist Party in China that Mr. Xi has to attend to for the 70th anniversary, is the Communist Party all on the same page? I mean, does he have sort of a national uniform mistrust,
3: as does the president? (laughs) Well, there are... She domestically has his detractors. Uh, there are many uh, within policy circles in China that that believe that she has made some very big mistakes, such as such as being too assertive, uh, being too confident, coming out and being too aggressive uh, in its 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 aims for global leadership, but also its plans for for made in China. Uh, and moving aggressively in ways that not just put the U.S., uh, gave the U.S. pause, but also other major trading uh, uh, partners pause. So there's some criticism there, but this is what trumps that criticism, is that when you have an outside power that is looking to, in in Beijing's views, gang up on China and force China to, to make moves that Xi Jinping is saying is going to, undermine that country's ability to transform its economy in a way that is suitable only to China being ganged up on by an outside imperial power you can see where this is going um, so he is we, we do see that she is using that nationalist card that nationalist sentiment in a way to shore up more domestic support for his pathway moving forward
1: Meredith let's talk about what may or may not happen at the back end of next year in the White House. It was really interesting watching the Democratic presidential debates last night and the views of the Democrats, I have to say, didn't seem too different from the view of the president when it comes to China and the objective of levelling the playing field. There was a great Washington Post piece recently, a great article on public opinion towards trade, and Democratic voters are moving towards increasingly a favourable view of trade. Now, some people might just say that's a partisan shift. The article admits to that. Might be just a shallow view. Yet not a single candidate is willing to weaponize it. Why not?
3: this is something also that we need to watch us more closely because if you look at the Democratic Party and, and what the candidates all said last night, not a single one of them came out and said that they would roll back the protectionist measures that President Trump has, has put in place. They all agreed we need to do more to negotiate with China and more to realign the, the two economies. I think it's still too early to say that the, the Democrats or Democratic voters are moving toward free trade. But rather what they're saying is they're recognizing that President Trump's trade agenda has really not come up with any concrete wins that is impacting them positively. And patience is beginning to run out.
0: Right. One European question, uh, uh, Meredith, and then we'll let you go. Midge Raman, on all we've observed in the last 24 hours, your your great Midge Raman, what's he think?
3: what do you think on on brexit on, or no, on, on draghi
0: ECB? on draghi europe you know the fiscal fiscal policy to the rescue
3: yeah, so you know, really, the, the relevant upshot from a, a politics perspective with the ECB easing is that the environment caused by such easy money means that markets are going to be in a more forgiving mood for political risk. Yeah. And you know, talking to Midge, what it comes down to, is that you know, investors need to remain focused on the stability or fragility of individual mm-hmm. countries in case that risk appetite reverses quickly.
0: Okay, Meredith Sumter, thank you so much. Thank the you, Just hugely valuable there on China.
1: To bring in Simon? I would love to. French. love to get his reaction to I the data we just I Simon seen. Panmer, but that didn't... Quite clearly not his back. name. Simon French of <clears> pan <throat> Panmer Gordon, <throat> the chief economist over there, joining us out of London. Simon, your view on the data that just dropped a minute or so ago.
4: I think you're right to focus on the inflationary aspect of that. um, I think markets had a bit of a shock, didn't they, yesterday, with the core CPI print and the, at least on the three-month annualized, breaking north of 3%. So that caused some anxiety. I think this would reassure people that, at least in the near term, that feels like a healthcare-related blip, a seasonal blip, rather than a uh, a significant push forward on, on import cost inflation. But it's, look, it all is playing in. To the fact that Jay Powell has, plenty, and the rest of the FMC have plenty to absorb next week in terms of trying to uh, tack a path between quite conflicting inflationary data, weakness in manufacturing, but ongoing resilience as we see in the headline retail sales in U.S. consumption,
1: and just keep adjusting the federal funds rate lower. Simon, they call it a mid-cycle adjustment. Typically, what we've seen at recent history, at least, does that suggest over the last couple of decades? That's about 75 basis points of cuts. From the Federal Reserve. Simon is that how you characterize frame things for clients right now that that's what we're going to get if there is a mid-cycle adjustment just three cuts?
4: Uh, what I'm saying to clients is that this is not uh, a Fed, whether it likes it or not, that is entirely data dependent. They may like to continue to use that terminology; it's beloved of many central bankers, but it's it is politically influenced. Whether it's politically compromised is a separate point, but it's certainly politically influenced. And I think at the moment there is there is more inflation in the U.S. economy than the president likes to believe, and therefore the delicate Uh, path that needs to be set out. Will this be a uh, mid-cycle adjustment of the type we saw perhaps last in 1998, where you try and provide some support to underlying demand given some sectoral weakness, or will it be something more perverse? And and, uh, ultimately, the answer to that lies in the White House rather than the Federal Reserve.
0: John, I want to point out in the 10-year, because we're so used to quoting yield, that on a price basis, the 10-year U.S. is now down 3.3%. That's not quite two years of coupon
1: 40 basis points on a 10 year in 10 days yeah Simon we've had a big move haven't we it's
4: a huge move uh it's a huge move in the context of positioning and I think that's key here, is that what you're seeing in terms of uh, the kind of outperformance of value versus momentum or inequities, which has been triggered by a reassessment on the bond market, means that positioning was very much skewed towards, right. I mean, I lost count to the number of uh, analyst notes that came out sort of talking about potential 0% 10-year treasury. They, they came out in a flurry, didn't they? Yeah. Now, if your positioning is set up for that, and then you recognize that it is not that simple then you have to do somewhat of a handbrake turn and i think that is what we're now seeing in terms of the price yeah. action on uh, the 10-year rather than just looking at the yields
0: simon very quickly here i've got one european question how did yeah. madame lagarde's job change yesterday i mean what does she do november one in november two in november three off what we observed yesterday
4: I mean, great question. I think uh, the regional bank, uh, the governors of uh, national banks have, have alluded to this point during the last 24 hours. Madame Lagarde has been given a state-dependent uh, set of policies from Mario Draghi. That is his legacy, and he moved away from time-dependent forward guidance. Will she try yeah. and pull back from that and say that things will change, or will she hold yeah. that? That is the key element that she has to get across in the first couple of weeks.
0: Well said, and John, I literally wrote down... Uh, in the heat of the press conference, when he said time dependent is done. I can't remember the exact language, but really important concept there. Simon French or Pamir Gordon. Thank you, Simon. Um, the American economy. John, what do you think of the data? I mean, yields higher.
1: Look, put it together with the data this week. Inflation yeah. came in a little bit hotter as well. It looks like the tone has improved around the trade story. I'm not sure how the mood music will adapt to the Federal Reserve 2%, decision
0: next week. Things
1: just.
5: Uh, Giles Turner joins us to uh, talk a little WeWorks. Uh, Giles covers uh, technology uh, in Europe. He joins us on the phone from London. Giles, thanks so much for being with us. You know, again, as Tom was suggesting, a lot of these high profile IPOs this year have really underperformed and and underwhelmed. What is the thinking going here for WeWorks? This This is not without a lot of hair on it just to start with.
6: Now, WeWork's a lot different from any other IPO, just like this company seems to be a lot different from any other company. Like, you've got to remember that WeWork has to IPO. That's the feeling from inside the company. It needs cash. When it IPOs, it needs to raise about $3 billion. and if it does that, then it gets the further $6 billion from credit lines from the bank. It needs all this stuff to keep growing at the pace it's going. Now, if it doesn't IPO, then it needs to find capital from it's, somewhere do- else, and that's a big ask.
0: Dove- dovetail what you just said with $15 a share. Our chief financial correspondent, Chanel. Bat, Essex is that's the chit chat right now. What you just said about three billion in cash does that equate to anything in the vicinity of fifteen dollars a share, plus or minus seven cents?
6: Well, I don't know. I haven't done the math. It needs to. Either am uh, I? <laughs> it's, it's, it's Hopefully To be, the me, to be honest, it. but it, look, it needs to. It needs to get a valuation of above above 20 billion, Really, like that's kind of the, the cap. Fifteen billion is too low. Both, <laughs> both a both soft bank is meant investor and also for <laughs> the bank is trying to push its IPO onto investors.
0: Uh, Paul Sweeney, 30 Churchill Place, 5 Merchant Square, 2 uh, Minster Court, The Monument, 97 Hackney Road, 12 Borgate, 77 Leadenhall Street, Shoreditch near some yep. tight place, 13 <laughs> Meard Street, The Stage, 52 Bedford Row, 120 moregate 41 Blackfriars, 10 Church, 123. I can't even get there. They got a we work at Buckingham Palace.
5: They're everywhere you. in the big market. So, Giles, you know, one of the... What has been some of the pushback that you've heard in the marketplace as it relates to WeWork and kind of walking down the valuation? And uh, what have you been hearing?
6: Well, there's two kind of two threads to this. The first, obviously, the valuation. I mean, you can forgive a lot of government problems with tech companies. It seems we've certainly seen it in the past. A lot of people are making money. The problem is if the valuation is too low. People are losing money. So no one really, you know everyone will talk the talk about governance. We've seen today there's plenty of change in the governance structure and investors obviously will make a big deal about this. But when it really comes down to if it was going to list a forty seven billion valuation, no one's going to be talking about governance issues. The fact is it's still hovering around fifteen and we'll wait and see what happens today yeah. if it gets up to twenty.
0: Full disclosure, number one poultry right next to where Giles Turner's coming from uh, at Queen Victoria Street as well. Giles do the commercial landlords of London and New York and the other cities, is WeWork their friend?
6: Well, I don't know. It's hard to say at the moment. It's certainly their friend at the beginning because uh, uh, it's taken up a lot of uh, demand for, for rental space. But The problem is WeWork has managed to sign very long leases, which obviously looks good in the short term, um, but obviously is trying to. Um, not pay much rent to begin with and signing very profitable deals for WeWork for the first three years where so it doesn't have to pay much, yeah. much rent. There's this huge rent cliff coming. And you know? when that comes, if WeWork can't pay its bills, then it's going to be no one's rent.
0: I just noticed in New York there's a WeWork in my living room. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. How did that
5: <laughs> Renting out the space. Uh, so, Charles, you kind of bring up a big fundamental issue for the real estate folks, which is. You know, going out and leasing long, as WeWork does, long-term, and then and, you know leasing out the uh, space to its tenants on a short-term basis, that's not the way good real estate works, is it?
6: No, but that's the argument that WeWork's making. It's not going to be like every other company. Uh, the idea is that the, the attitude of people... The work environment is changing. People don't want to do job, you know, jobs for life anymore. People are happy to work for startups, have to have high turnover. That's what the, yeah. the argument is pushing.
0: Very quickly, Giles, what happens Monday? I mean, they get through the weekend. Everybody regroups. Are you waiting to hear in London or New York from SoftBank, or what's the next next?
6: Yeah, I mean, that would be the key thing. I mean, what SoftBank thinks about this being one of its main shareholders is going to be key. Um, whether if it's happy with this, yeah. then fine, I can expect it might get away at 20. But if it's not, then there'll be more arguments to come over the weekend, I bet.
0: Giles Turner, brilliant update. Thank you, thank you. Out of London as well. And we forget that the WE company uh, is uh, uh, truly international. a good Friday conversation, which is after we saw yesterday, QE infinity, Paul, it's open a debate how yep. far out that goes. <laughs> Let's talk about financial repression, infinity, Brian Raylings with Wells Fargo Institute uh, of St. Louis and Brian thrilled to have you with us here in the New York studios. And I want to go back to a Bill Gross phrase, which is financial repression, which can be either the negative real rates we have or the very low nominal real rates that investors face in the United States. Does it go on forever? Do
7: we do we have to invest, assuming forever, this low-rate environment? Well, for the time being, it certainly appears that way. I think what you saw out of the ECB and you're seeing from the other central banks is this strong desire to see fiscal policy uh, try to pull us out of... Uh, what yeah, but who's going to help
0: to save her? I mean, at Wells Fargo... With all of your sprawl, the saver is flat on their back. Not like in Europe. I get that that's terrible. What does a saver do
7: on a September weekend when they have to find a real yield? Well, I think, uh, and this has been my um, thought for a while here, I think what we're going to see and we have been seeing is this demand for yield. So the savers are going to start taking a little bit more risk because they have to find yield. So you're going to have um, securities like preferred securities, one of the best performing fixed income uh, sectors this year, Uh, dividend stocks, MLPs, REITs. Um, I mean, those are the type of securities I think these savers are going to gravitate to. Um, You're causing savers to take more risk than they should otherwise probably be taking, but they really don't have any other choice if they want uh, some income here.
5: So Brian, I mean, Wells Fargo, 15,000 brokers all over the country. I know you probably spent a lot of your time on the road visiting with those financial advisors and their clients. Are they, when you go to those offices across the country, are they willing to take that risk? Or do you think they may be taking too much risk here as they search for yield and we could be getting in a little bit of a speculative situation?
7: I mean, it all depends on the client's situation. And I think this is what you're seeing in the broader market, too, uh, right? So for those clients that have accumulated enough wealth, right, they're not going to take the risk. You know, they're going to hang out in short-term securities, safe securities. For clients uh, that are maybe in or approaching retirement, that maybe haven't saved uh, the amount they need to save and they need that income, they're going to be forced to take the risk and and so we're trying uh, to find ways for those types of clients uh, to take a little bit more calculated risk but it's still risk don't get me wrong
5: so what are some of the areas that you're finding or you're suggesting that your private wealth clients look for enhanced yield
7: well i mean i, I kind of go back to preferreds again this is an area we've been pretty favorable on they're getting more expensive um no doubt i think they're up over 14 percent this year and uh really these would be securities bought for the income not for the total yeah. return right um but i mean still five to five and a half percent uh, where the underlying credit is right. a quality credit and you're getting the uh dividends treated yeah. you dividend treatment right
0: major shout out new york to chris whalen has been way out front as you have on the preferred story as well i mean i don't think Wells Fargo is going to advocate for a 100-year bond, and we know what the Austrian piece has done in the yield back up. But I got a 47-year French piece – with a one and three quarters percent coupon, they're giving it away today, Paul, with 132 price. That's enough to make <laughs> Al Goldman choke. Uh, and, and the yield is 0.88, percent And Brian, I've enjoyed an 11% decline in this puppy over the last three or four weeks as well. Are we setting retail up to get killed with this bond extension of a U.S. 50-year piece? At some point, they're all going to roll over and take an 11% hit in a cup of coffee.
7: Well, I don't think retail is buying these type of uh, securities. Who's buying them? Uh, Asset liability matchers, right? Pension Mm -hmm. funds, um, institutions uh, and uh, uh, clients uh, or institutions that need to to have index exposure uh, where these are there. so But retail's not yeah, buying government the, the, long-dated debt. The big
0: story in your life and my life and Paul's life is in the Times of London this week, the life annuity yield in the United Kingdom is in the vicinity of 4.1%. I got a 47-year French coupon trading under 1%. We're giving out 4.1%. What's the actuarial assumption for our listeners in the Brian railing world?
7: I don't know. I mean, sub you, four. <laughs> I mean, <clears throat> honestly, you know, four four percent type of returns over but the long term me. doesn't sound so bad these days. Oh, right. I mean, I don't. <laughs> I don't know. To, well, what's the what's the driver to get um, growth moving and returns moving? Fair, again? fair to go right to productivity and economic yep, growth. It just means
5: yeah. you have to work longer, Tom. That's all. I thought so that I was doing really right good. Tom thought today was it. Yeah. He was just going to you know, ride off and go to a, you well, know, down to Jamaica, but yeah. no. Yeah. Oh, okay. you got to keep working. You have to earn that return. Brian,
0: what's, when you go out and talk to people at Wells Fargo, what do you hear from people that, you know, it's not they romantically want the old days of 9% CDs or 9% annuities, 7% CD or that, but what, what do people actually say about the milieu we're in?
7: Well, I think, I mean, we've been here for a while now, so people have kind of become accustomed to it, right? So we used to get a lot more questions, you know, five, seven, eight years ago than we do today. Uh, So people have adjusted. I'd say the bulk of the questions we get today, um, take it to the extreme. People are actually worrying about rates going negative, right? So, you know, these two, two and a half percent type yields, um, you know, they're more worried about uh, the extremes here than really – I mean, they've become accustomed to this low-rate Does Wells Fargo
0: have a belief on this vector moving down to J.P. Morgan? Jan Lowe is making a huge splash with a model, not a forecast, but a model that could drive us under 1% 10-year yield, even lower.
7: Oh, I think certainly we could see, you know, the 10-year fall below 1%. What would it take? It would take a recession. slowdown. Yeah. yeah, I mean, probably a recession and probably um, – you know, a somewhat meaningful slowdown, Uh, but we could definitely get there. I mean, we're kind of due for one, right?
0: Okay, Brian Railing, thank you so much with Wells Fargo. Uh, Their institute talking about uh, the world of fixed income as well. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen.